the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Bayonet Point, WTBN, Pinellas Park. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. What they want to know is how can anybody... Anybody get into the kingdom if a wealthy man can't? How can we be saved? How can somebody who's poor be saved? That's a tremendous question and ought not to be overlooked. That's why I said Jesus isn't teaching it's hard but possible. They understood what he was saying. They knew there was no little gate called the eye of the needle. Jesus was talking about an impossibility. Great question, because it forced the disciples to face the most important issue in life. It forces us to face it. How can anyone be saved if no one can be saved by their good deeds? How can anyone be saved? Have you ever wondered about that? When people say Jesus is the answer, that's the question he answers. How can unrighteous sinners like us stand before a just and holy God? Welcome to Verse by Verse, a radio Bible class led by Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Today we're finishing another sermon in Pastor Steve's series in Matthew 19 about the love of money. In this account, Jesus told his disciples that it would be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter heaven. In other words, it's impossible. That would be really bad if God didn't have a better plan. Here's Pastor Steve. There are some people who won't accept these words at face value, and so what they've come up with is this interpretation. When I was in Israel one time, someone on our tour group even mentioned this. If you do a Google search online, you will see that this is a common interpretation. They would say that the expression, the eye of a needle, it's not a literal sewing needle. It was a gate, they say. In the ancient wall of Jerusalem, every city in ancient times had a wall around it to protect it. To go into the city, you had to go through a gate in the wall. And they say there was one of those gates, very tiny gate, a small gate called the eye of the needle. Therefore, they tell us, for a camel to have entered into into the city of Jerusalem, they had to go through this small gate. And for a camel, this huge animal, if you've ever seen a camel, they are huge and not particularly attractive. And don't get too close to them because they can spit at you. Just want you to know that if you ever come face to face with a camel. But so they would tell us that for one of these camels to enter through this gate, their baggage had to be unloaded so they could crawl on their knees through this tiny opening. Likewise, they say, as the analogy goes, a rich man must do the very difficult task of unloading the baggage of his sin. And then he has to humble himself by getting on his knees and then entering the narrow gate of God's kingdom. Now, there is truth to that. No one can be saved apart from humbling themselves and 
and repenting of their sin. But there is a serious flaw with this view. Two serious flaws. Number one, there is no historical evidence, nor is there any archaeological evidence anywhere that there has ever been a gate called the Eye of the Needle in the ancient city of Jerusalem. It's never been found. Nobody knows it. It's been excavated. They've gone all around the wall. There is no gate that's ever been called the Eye of a Needle. And besides, if there was a gate, and perhaps they might find a gate tomorrow, that's still not a problem. And still, this view is not valid because even if there was such a small gate like this, It doesn't make any sense for a man to force his camel to go through all the trouble of passing through this small opening when he could just as easily take him a few yards to the left or the right and have him go through a larger doorway without any problem. It just doesn't make any sense. Why would you put that camel through so much? It's not the only entrance into a city. Now, beyond these two issues, the primary problem with this view is that it completely misses the point of our Lord's words. It is an attempt to bypass the strong language that Jesus intentionally gave to make a point. Jesus wasn't teaching how hard but possible it was for a wealthy man to be saved. He was teaching that it was absolutely impossible for a rich man to be saved. Well, now that I have confused all of you and you're wondering, where is he going with this? Let's consider what Jesus did mean by these words. Why did he say that it wasn't possible for a rich man to enter heaven? Well, the answer lies in understanding the thinking of the wealthy Jewish men of his day. You see, the wealthy people of that era thought that salvation could be purchased by doing charitable deeds. It was commonly believed by virtually all Jewish people that money was a sign of God's blessing and approval, and that the more money a person had, the more he could give it away. Now, he wouldn't give all of it away, but some of it he would give to the poor. And the more he gave his money to the poor, the better chance he had of gaining merit with God to enter heaven. In other words, rich people, it was commonly believed, were the most likely people to earn their way into heaven because they could give the most money to please God and gain his favor. It was salvation by purchasing it. This was really no different than what incensed Martin Luther about the selling of indulgences. In fact, the Talmud, which is a collection of Jewish sacred writings, actually states that almsgiving, which is giving charitably to the poor, is equal to keeping the law of Moses And the rabbi said, this will bring deliverance from condemnation and make one perfectly righteous. That's what the rabbis taught. That's what the people believed, including our Lord's Jewish disciples. They bought into that. Rich people, they thought, were the best candidates to enter the kingdom because the giving of their money gave them the best chance of impressing God. But Jesus shot that view right out of the water. He shot it right out of the water. He just said in one fell swoop the complete opposite of the common thinking of that day. He just said there was no way that a wealthy man trusting in his own efforts and charitable giving could enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, he just denounced salvation by works of almsgiving as well as any other kind of good deeds done to merit favor with God. That's what Jesus just said. Now keep in mind, The context of Christ's teaching here 
is that Jesus has just told the rich young ruler to give not some of his money, but all of it away. For whom? For the poor. Not because this would save him, but because he needed to repent of the idolatry of money. But the man wasn't willing to do this. However, in all likeliness, though the text doesn't explicitly state this, the rich young ruler probably, like like all wealthy people, did give some of his money to the poor and felt, apparently, that, that this would give him some merit before God, but to give all of it away, no, he wasn't going to do that. And apparently that's exactly what the Lord's disciples are thinking because they are absolutely blown away by Christ's words of the utter impossibility of a rich man being saved. Notice how they respond to his words. They understood what he was saying, that it wasn't hard but possible. They got the message. Notice verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished. It means they were flabbergasted. And they said, then who can be saved? This is actually a great question. This is really a wonderful question the disciples asked Jesus because it indicates that they understood precisely what he was saying. They realized that contrary to all they had been taught by the rabbis, Jesus had just said that salvation could not be purchased by the wealthy. And so they want to know if a rich person who's been blessed by God with a great deal of money can't buy his way into the kingdom, then how can anyone, especially a poor person, hope to be saved? Folks, that's precisely what they're asking. In other words, what they want to know is how can anybody, anybody get into the kingdom if a wealthy man can't? How can we be saved? How can somebody who's poor be saved? That's a tremendous question and ought not to be overlooked. That's why I said Jesus isn't teaching it's hard but possible. They understood what he was saying. They knew there was no little gate called the eye of the needle. Jesus was talking about an impossibility. Great question, because it forced the disciples to face the most important issue in life. It forces us to face it. How can anyone be saved if no one can be saved by their good deeds? How can anyone be saved? Have you ever wondered about that? How? How if the most generous philanthropist on the planet can't be saved? by giving away his money, what hope is there for the rest of us who don't have as much money to give away? If the nicest person on the planet can earn their way into heaven by being good and kind and sweet and gentle, what about the rest of us? That's what the disciples want to know. What hope is there for us? Who can be saved then? And Jesus gave the most wonderful answer in verse 26 to the most important of all questions Verse 26, I love this, and looking at them. That must have been a look of tenderness, love, focusing his attention on them, making sure they were looking at him in the eye. Looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. As the Lord stared, focused on them, he told them that with men, it is impossible for them to be saved by their own effort and good deeds. That's exactly what he's saying. With men, it's impossible. Nobody can earn salvation by their good deeds. Why is that? Because every man, every woman, every boy, every girl is a sinner who has committed countless, countless crimes against God. And therefore, we stand condemned before a perfectly holy God who must judge sin by pouring out 
his wrath. We can ignore that in life. We can try to drown it out by enjoying this world, but that is the reality. We stand condemned before a holy God who we must give an account of how we've lived. And God, by his justice, must pour out his wrath upon sin. How could any deeds we do eliminate the guilt and condemnation of our sins? They can't. They can't. However, while it is impossible for men and women to secure salvation by their own effort and good works, Jesus said, note this, he said, but with God, all things are possible. Don't overlook that. That is a glorious statement. With God, all things are possible, meaning that our salvation isn't dependent upon us doing anything, but solely upon his work, the work of Christ in paying the penalty for sin on the cross and then sovereignly changing our hearts so that we will see it, we will understand the truth of the gospel, we'll turn from trusting in our own efforts to be saved to trusting in him alone for our salvation. With God, there is no one, no one, who has to be excluded because God can do a work of grace in even the most hardened of hearts. Simply put, Jesus meant that it is impossible for you to save yourself by your own good works, but God can and will save all he chooses to save by granting them repentance and faith in Christ. This is the glorious truth. This is, this is the heart of the gospel. This is John chapter 3 in which Jesus said, you must Be born again. I remember hearing the story of George Whitfield preaching this great message in an open crowd of you must be born again. And a man came up to him after and said, why do you always preach that you must be born again? And I love his answer. He said, because you must be born again. There is no other way. What does that mean? It means that God sovereignly regenerates you. He opens your heart to the gospel. He gives you a new nature. You must be born again. No one can see the kingdom of heaven unless he's born again. It's not by your effort. It's by his grace. John 6, Jesus said, no one can come to me. Catch that. No one can come to him unless the father who sent me draws him. No one's interested in coming to Christ. No one wants to come to Christ. We'd be all like the rich young ruler walking away from Christ. Unless Jesus said, The Father who sent me draws him. It's all of God's sovereign grace in our lives. Even the most hardened sinner, like Saul of Tarsus, can come to faith in Christ because God is the one who turns his heart towards him. I'd like you to open your Bibles. I'd like you to look at Ephesians chapter 2. And I want to very quickly give you a running commentary on this because this is a critical passage. This is the magnificent truth that Jesus was teaching. No one can save themselves. It's impossible. But God can save even the most hardened sinner. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Paul said, And you, speaking to the church at Ephesus, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them... We too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, notice this, by nature, this was our our nature, this is the way we were, children of wrath, 
even as the rest. Now, Paul said, this is what you were. You hated God. You followed Satan's ways, even if you didn't believe he existed. You had a nature, which was the real you, that was wrathful. You were a child of wrath. By the way, that nature, you do what you do because you have a nature. You are a sinner by nature, and thus you sin. We need a change of nature. Our wills only do what our nature dictates. You can dress up a little dog as cute as you want, but it'll still be a dog, and it'll do those disgusting things that dogs do at times. That's what Peter means when he said that a dog returns to its own vomit. I, hopefully you haven't eaten yet and you understand that, but, but you can dress up a little pig, you can put all kinds of nail polish and stuff and wash it, but he is a pig and he will act like a pig. A pig will not act like a dog, a dog will not act like a pig, and a sinner will not act like a saint as long as he has a sinful nature and that's what Paul is saying. But God doesn't leave us there. This is his mercy, his grace, verse four. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us. He loved us who were children of wrath by nature. Notice, even when we were dead in our transgressions. Folks, when you were dead, when you were not interested in Christ, he made us alive together with Christ. That's what it means to be born again. The Lord invaded your life and regenerated you. And Paul adds, to clarify, by grace you've been saved. You didn't do anything. It's by grace you were saved. And he raised us up with him. He's talking positionally as God sees us. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why did he do it this way? Why is salvation not by our own efforts? So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Not only were we not capable of doing anything good to gain God's pleasure, but God did it this way so that for all of eternity, our song, our praise is all going to be directed in adoration to him for his kindness in saving us. That's what eternity is. It starts now, though, that we we are so in awe of the fact of his kindness to us in saving, we who are sinners, that we can do nothing but give him praise. And then Paul adds this great doctrine to explain to us, for by grace You have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. You didn't do a thing. What is the gift of God? Salvation, repentance, faith, everything is the gift of God. Your place and my place in salvation as we ran as far as we could from him, his place and work in salvation as he went after us and brought us to himself. Paul adds in verse 9, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. A rich man can't boast of his riches. The man who does good deeds can't boast of his good deeds. We boast of Christ. And then what's the place of of doing good deeds then in the Christian life? It's in verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Literally, it means we're his poem. We're his creation. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before so that we would walk in in them. We do good things now, meaning we, we want to obey the word of God as a way of saying, we love you, Lord. Thank you. We're not trying to gain God's favor. It's our response to his grace in our lives. See, salvation comes as a result of the sovereign and gracious work of God. He's the one who convicts us of our sin so that we see ourselves as sinners who can't save ourselves. If he doesn't show us that, we don't see it. 
He's the one who gives us an understanding of the meaning of Christ's death so that we see that by him dying on the cross as our substitute, receiving the wrath of God in our place, we see that's the only way to be saved. You can't see that unless he shows it to you. He's the one who mysteriously, and it is a mystery, he draws us to himself so that we are even interested in coming to him for salvation. And he's the one who grants us repentance and faith in Christ. Repentance to turn from our sins and faith to trust Christ alone to save us for all eternity. Folks, this is a hallelujah. This is a great statement because it's the encouragement for each of us, not only to praise him for saving us, but it is the encouragement for each of us to say that with God, he can save the most hardened sinner. That person you work with, perhaps, who mocks the gospel. That family member of yours who has no interest at all in Christianity. And every time you bring the subject up, they change it. Perhaps the person you're married to who wants to hear nothing about your life in Christ. Nothing about church. Nothing about the gospel. Maybe a, a friend you were raised with and you came to Christ and this person hasn't. And this person said, look, I like you, but I don't want to hear about it anymore. Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. He can save that person. That's the glorious message for all of us. Sadly, though, the rich young ruler never experienced God's grace in his life. Apparently, he continued thinking that his good works could earn him salvation. And he regrets it to this day. And he will regret it every day of eternity. I wonder if you have ever seen yourself as trying to earn your way into God's heaven. I wonder if that's what you've been doing. I wonder if some of you thinking that coming to church is a good thing, doing religious deeds will gain God's favor, relying upon a church experience, perhaps baptism, confirmation, trying to be good, maybe giving your money to good causes. I wonder if that's what you've been trusting in to get to heaven. Jesus said, if you do that, you do that, it'd be easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for you to go to heaven based on that kind of effort. So I urge you to heed Christ's words today. Turn from everything you think could earn you salvation to fall and cast yourself upon the mercy of God in Christ alone to save you from your sins. Let's bow for prayer, and I'm going to ask Pastor Joe to come up and close us in prayer. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we hear the words of Jesus, the impossibility of a hardened heart to turn towards you, and we marvel at the grace you showed each one of us when you opened our eyes. Lord, I pray for those today who may not know that grace, who, as Pastor Steve said, in their own way, are keeping a ledger, trying to earn their way into heaven. Lord, it is an impossibility, but the hope of the gospel is that you didn't leave us in this helpless state. You did send your son to live a perfect life and to die a substitutionary, atoning death, taking the punishment that wicked sinners deserved so that those he would draw to himself would have newness of life. Lord, we pray that you would open eyes today to see the reality of a spiritual condition and draw saints to you. Lord, for those of us who have repented and believed, we just praise you because we realize it is all of you. Help us not be 
arrogant with our salvation. Help us not be prideful in what we've figured out, but Lord, help us be humbled that you've showed mercy to us sinners and help us be motivated with humility to take that gospel message to other sinners who are lost and dying. Lord, we praise you and we thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm glad you could join us for Verse by Verse. Our teacher is Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. If you still have questions about how to be saved, or if you'd simply like directions so you can visit Lakeside, call the office at 727-441-1714. You can also request a free audio CD. Ask for message number 4251, Loving Money, Part 1. You can discover more about Lakeside online at lakesidechapel.com. Verse by Verse is listener-supported, so thanks for your gifts. You can give by phone by calling Lakeside or give online via the giving page at versebyverseradio.org. That's versebyverseradio.org. And don't forget all those free audio files on the Message Archive page. This is Jerry Peterson. Proverbs 14.20 says, The poor is disliked even by his neighbor but the rich has many friends. However, rich people tend to suspect that many of those friends are just looking for a handout. So if we follow Jesus, what will we get out of it? Frankly, more than we can imagine. But if that's our sole motive for loving him, how genuine is our love? Just because we're... Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.